Good morning. That is if you are watching it as it comes on to, to Facebook and YouTube. Uh, if you're watching it uh, any other evening or night, then, then good evening or good night. Uh, whichever the case may be, if you would take out your Bible and, and turn me to the book of Matthew chapter 27. Uh, actually do that. Get your Bible out, even though you may be sitting at home. Um, get your Bible out. Get your notes out if you take notes. And, and try to envision yourself here in this room as I'm trying to envision you all here in this room as well. Uh, so uh, these are certainly uh, strange times that we are currently in. Uh, so strange, in, in fact, that I find it difficult to believe that we are coming up on Easter Sunday in only a few weeks. And with that being said, uh, the next three Sundays are going to be going through the last three days, the three days leading up to the resurrection. I think we've titled it uh, the, the Three Days That Changed the World. So today we're going to walk through Friday, the day in which Jesus died, the day in which we call Good Friday. Um, next week, Matt will preach to the events that happened between the the death and resurrection of Jesus on Saturday, and then of course Sunday we'll be studying through the resurrection of Jesus. So then today, as we walk through uh, the Friday before the resurrection, we'll primarily be looking uh, and talking about the death of Jesus and the events leading up to the death of Jesus. And one thing that has always puzzled me about this is that we call it Good Friday. That we call it Good Friday. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, what is good about Good Friday? What is good about the day that Jesus died on the cross? What is good about that? Why do we call it Good Friday? Shouldn't it be Bad Friday or Evil Friday or Dark Friday? Listen to the way that a writer named David Mathis describes this Friday. He says, It was, a sing it was the single most horrible day in the history of the world. No incident has ever been more tragic. No future event will ever match it. No surprise attack, no political assassination, no financial collapse, no military invasion, no atomic detonation or nuclear warfare, no cataclysmic act of terrorism, no large-scale famine or disease can eclipse the darkness of that day. No suffering has ever been so unfitting. No human has ever been so unjustly treated because no other human has ever been so worthy of praise. No one else has ever lived without sin. No other human has ever been God himself. No horror surpasses what transpired on a hill outside Jerusalem almost two millennia ago. And this is the day that we have called Good Friday. <laughs> so as we walk through the events leading up to the death of Jesus, I want you to keep this idea of, of a Good Friday in mind. And I want you to be skeptical about it. I want you to ask yourself, how do we call this Good Friday? Are the things that we're reading, do they sound good or do they sound bad? And I want you to see uh, this, but I also want you to see it through a very particular lens. And the lens that I want us to see the badness through and the evil of this day through is through Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So this is the balance that I want us to strike as we uh, go through this passage. That balance is that, that what took place on that day was absolutely and utter, utterly awful. But what man or Satan has intended for evil, God has intended for good. What really was, what we really can call the worst Friday in the history of the world can indeed be called Good Friday by those who trust in Jesus. So let's read from Matthew chapter 27. We're going to break the passage down into three parts. 
Uh, it, was, it was a little bit too long to read all together, especially since we're not in the same room together. I want to be able to keep your attention as we read. So first, let's read Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 11, and let's go through verse 26. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The first event of Good Friday that I want us to consider and to think about is this event that we've just read, the trial before Pilate. The trial before Pilate. Jesus, who was, before we read here, betrayed by Judas and, and brought to the high priest, is now being brought before Pilate. He was a governor of Rome for Jerusalem. And the bad and the evil that we see in this particular part of the text comes largely from Pilate himself. Uh, of course, also from the Jews who have conspired against him to bring him to this point. What we see here is there's a lot of, uh, of action from, from Pilate himself that, that shows us that he is not a good governor, that he is not acting as a good judge. Uh, because he was a governor of the people, uh, because he was to be uh, a judge for his people, uh, we see a lot of this comes down on his shoulders. Look at verse 19, it tells us that, that the place in which he made his decisions is actually called the judgment seat. So Pilate is to be a judge for the people, and as a judge, he should be expected to be a fair judge, a just judge. And if you read John's account of this same event, you'll see that he uh, says three times about Jesus, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man, yet, and he's, he's, yet he still lets Jesus end up crucified and being found as guilty because of the pressure from the Jews and because he's trying to protect this political standing that he has with, with Caesar. He lets an innocent man be found guilty. So Pilate fails to be a good judge in that he has allowed an innocent man to be charged as guilty, but then also he fails as a good judge because he allows a guilty man, a murderer, a thief, to walk free. Barabbas, who was this thief and this murderer, and this man who tried to stir up rebellion in Jerusalem, 
he gets to walk free. Verse 26, if you'll glance there, sums up this injustice against Jesus. It says, Then he, talking about Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The guilty man walks free while the innocent man gets scourged and then condemned to crucifixion. Does this sound like a good event? Does this sound like a good thing? The answer is no. It's obviously a work of evil. The Jews acted out of envy and hate. And while we see Pilate acts out of selfishness and cowardice, this event is filled with evil on behalf of man. But as I said earlier, I want us to flip on these Romans 8:28 goggles and to see this through that perspective and see how even this injustice and this cowardice and selfishness on the on the behalf of Pilate is working together in some way for good. So first of all, the first way we could see this as as an act of or as a as good and probably most plainly most plain way that we can see this uh, is to think about the fact that this had to happen. This had to happen in order for Jesus to be crucified. He had to be brought before a judge, and that judge had to, to say, yes, he, he needs to be crucified. And he had to go to the cross in order to offer atonement for sin. So the good that God is working out, that, that, that climaxes at the death and resurrection of Jesus, can only be possible if Jesus does, in fact, actually die, and this is the way in which he gets to that point. Now, hear me out. This does not excuse Pilate, nor the Jews who bring him there, uh, from their sin. This does not excuse them. They were still acting on their own volition. But God, however, uses their evil intentions, and he uses them for good. The second way that we can see good in this picture is we see a, a foreshadow, if you will, of what Jesus is going to do at the cross, of what Jesus is going to accomplish at the cross. You see, Barabbas, as Luke would describe, is a man who is guilty of, of murder, of insurrection, which means he was rebellious, a man who by God's and man's standards deserved to die, deserved to die. He walks free. You see, Pilate gave the Jews a choice. He said, you can either take this innocent man and, and leave the guilty man in prison, or they could free the guilty man and leave the innocent man in prison and eventually to die at the cross. So when Barabbas gets to go free, he gets to go free because he has traded places with Jesus. He gets to go free because he has traded places with Jesus, who is an innocent man. While this may not be the reason the gospel writers include this here, we certainly can learn something from it. So you may think about Barabbas and about the decision the Jews made, and you may think, man, what an awful guy. How could they, even with so much hate they had for Jesus, let someone like Barabbas go free? But if we understand our own sin, and if we understand that our hearts are against God outside of Christ, then we can understand that the truth is, is that we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. If you are in Christ, then you are like Barabbas in that you have had shackles that hold you down taken off, and they were placed on the hands of Jesus instead. You have stepped down off of an, eternally, an eternal death row, but only to have your spot taken uh, in place by Jesus. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. And then Romans 5.8 before that says, But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So then if you have sinned, 
spoiler alert, which you have, you have committed an high, a high crime against a perfectly holy God. And you have been sentenced to an eternal death. But if you are in Jesus, then he has carried out that sentence. He has carried out that sentence. And you can say, I am Barabbas. I have been set free and Jesus has taken my place. This whole transaction that we see take place here could be summarized in this one sentence. It's one sentence, if I'm using grammar right, y'all may tell me later I'm not. But this one sentence here, the people sacrificed Jesus for Barabbas out of hate for Jesus. But God has sacrificed Jesus for us out of love for us. I'll say it again. It's kind of a long sentence. The people sacrificed Jesus for Barabbas out of hate for Jesus, but God has sacrificed Jesus for us out of love for us. So that's the first major event of Good Friday, the trial of Jesus before Pilate, the trial in which he was sentenced to the cross. The second major event that I want us to look at is the crucifixion itself and the torturing and the mocking that comes with it. Read, read verses 27 through 44 with me. Verses 27 through 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of, of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when he had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I said 44, but actually, no, that's where we're going to stop there. Uh, it doesn't take much for us to see evil in that, in that mocking and in the fact that he's crucified, the fact that they set a crown of thorns to his head, that they scourged him, that they stripped him. Jesus deserved none of this. Not only did Jesus live a perfect life, but the life that he lived, he did good things for other people. He healed people. He fed people. He taught people. He gave the blind people sight. He gave the lame the ability to walk. And yet here he is being spit on and mocked and led away to his crucifixion. Notice in verse 32, this just kind of gives us an idea of, of perhaps how badly he had been beaten before he gets to this point. They were going to, they were taking him to the cross, and, and you see in verse 32 that they had to stop and get a man named Simon and compel this man to carry the cross for Jesus. 
It doesn't say explicitly why in any of the Gospels, but it's, it's well assumed that it's because Jesus, after being beaten so badly and being scourged the way he was, was unable to carry his own cross all the way to the top of the hill. Uh, the Gospel writers don't go into much detail about the act of the crucifixion itself. Most of them simply just have a short line saying that it had taken place, that it had been done. This line for, for Matthew is verse 35. It says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then you see in verse 37 that the mocking continues. You see how they place a sign over his head that says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Sarcastically, of course. Verse 39 points out, the people who passed by were wagging their heads and continued to mock Jesus, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And finally, the chief priest himself comes forward and says in verse 41, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. As I said, it's, it's not hard to see the bad in all that and all the mocking, and all the, the act of the crucifixion, crucifixion. But from it, we do see something really incredible. Some really uh, incredible good we see. Not, not from the mockers, not from the, those who brought them there, but, but from Jesus. We see the Son's willingness to suffer. We see the Son's willingness to suffer. The great irony there's great irony in the mocking because the things, some of the things they were saying were true. He is king of the Jews. He's the son of God. The sign above his head couldn't have been more accurate. He is king of the Jews and he is king of everyone else. And think about like in verse 40 when they said, uh, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. That's, there's a lot of irony there because what he is doing is fulfilling what he had already said. As he is dying... The temple is being destroyed, and as he's going to rise in three days, the temple's being resurrected. It's being rebuilt. And that's ironic because if he had listened to them, if he had come down off the cross and saved himself, then he wouldn't have been fulfilling what he had promised. But he stays there and does fulfill that. They go on to say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is the gist of all of their mocking. It's that if you are the Son of God, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, then save yourself. If you are the Son of God, then do something miraculous and save yourself. This is the basis for their mocking. But what they did not understand is that because Jesus is the Son of God, He is obeying the will of the Father. Because Jesus is the Son of God, He is obeying the will of the Father. Being the Son of God, it certainly is true that Jesus could have saved Himself in a number of ways. He could have sent down a legion of angels to pick him up off the cross, or he simply could have just lifted up off of it. But because he is the Son of God, he is being obedient to the Father. He stays. He stays on the cross. And he does so for you and for me that we might have salvation through his death and his resurrection. Luke 22, verse 42. This is the night before uh, what the events are reading now takes place. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see this incredible obedience to the will of the Father. Despite the agony of the cross, despite the agony of knowing that he's going to be forsaken, abandoned by the Father at the cross, despite the literal drops of blood that he is sweating from his face as he prays, despite all that, Jesus is obedient to the Father. 
Jesus chooses to obey the Father. He could have lifted himself up off that cross, but he stays because he is obedient to the will of the Father, and he is on a mission to save those who have put their trust in him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the good that we can see in this awful mocking and in this crucifixion is that Jesus is that he is obedient um, to the Father. His willingness to die on a cross, to be mocked, to be crucified, to suffer an excruciating death for you and for me and for anyone who would put their trust in him. So we've seen the trial of Jesus and how at the trial of Jesus we see a huge injustice against Jesus. We've seen uh, the, the crucifixion and the mocking of Jesus and how Jesus despite all that, stays obedient to the Father. Finally, we're going to look to the, the death of Jesus itself. Uh, it's in verses 45 through 50, if you would read there with me. Now from the sixth hour there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. You'll notice this isn't the last thing that Matthew records of this day. He goes on to record the, uh, the burial, uh, the, the, earth, the earthquaking, the veil being torn in two. Uh, but as... Uh, I want us to sit here for a minute and think about the last recorded words of Jesus that Matthew writes here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus here in his final moments is expressing his, his heart's cry by quoting uh, a psalm, Psalm 22. That psalm goes on to say, Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. How is it that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is forsaken by God? It's a deep mystery. I couldn't begin to, to explain it. But as Jesus in his final moments, as he bears our sin, and with that sin, as he bears the judgment of God, the full wrath of God against Sin is on Jesus. And in that moment, the Father turns his face away. The earth is dark. The Son has been forsaken by the Father. The Son, who has always been with the Father, is abandoned by the Father. Verse 50, we read the final words, the final words of the life of Jesus. It says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We've mentioned a lot of bad that happened on Good Friday. The injustice of the trial by Pilate, the scourging, the mocking, the crucifixion, but this is by far the worst event, the most painful event that could have happened. The Son of God, through whom all life was created, through whom God created everything, is now uh, losing his own life. And the Son of God, who has always been near to the Father, is separated by sin from the Father, but not his own sin, but ours. Jesus bore our sin so that we wouldn't have to. 
And that moment at the cross where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, He took our place. He took our place. He bore our sin so that we could bear His righteousness. This is why we can call it Good Friday. The worst event in human history, and God was working out His greatest good. That is that He created a way for you and for me to have salvation and to have a relationship with God. I mentioned Romans 8.28 earlier and then a couple times after that, talking about that being the lens through which we view these things. But I want us to continue reading there just for a minute. So if you would go ahead and turn to Romans 8. You don't have to hold your spot in Matthew. We're not going to come back to Matthew for right now or for the rest. So Romans 8, go to verse 28. I want us to see here what Paul means when he says all things work out for good. Because it doesn't just stop there. He goes on to kind of, I think, describe what that good is. Romans 8, 28. We'll read there and then we'll read two more verses down to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So the good that all things are working towards the good that we can see on this terrible day at the cross uh, is that it is working towards our justification and then eventually our own glorification. Because we can't be justified without Jesus going to the cross. We can't be justified without Jesus have, having been forsaken by God. He is forsaken so that we can be accepted. This is why we can ultimately call this Good Friday. And by we, I mean those who have put their trust in Jesus, those who can call themselves Christians, those who are in Christ. Because for those of you, for those who are outside of Christ, for those who don't know Christ, this is an awful Friday because in this Friday we see the full wrath of God against sin. And it cannot be brushed off. It cannot go unpunished. If God was willing to give up His only Son so that sin could be taken care of, then it must be serious. If that was the only way that sin could be handled, then sin must be serious. It's been paid for. It's been handled by Jesus, but it's only good for you if you've put your trust in Jesus. It's only effective if you've turned to Him in faith. If you're in Christ, then use this time to praise God for what He has done at the cross and for what He has done in your own life. And if you're not, then there is no better time to turn to Jesus and to trust Him today. Normally this is a time where we would have a hymn of invitation. This is a time where we would um, have an open altar. Of course, we're unable to do that today. But if you need to talk to someone, if you need to pray with someone, don't hesitate to get a hold of me or Matt. We're easy to get a hold of on Facebook or through phone. Uh, but before I close, I want to read, not sing, that's for y'all's sake, a hymn that is probably very familiar to you and familiar to most. It's by Stuart Townsend. It's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon His shoulders, 
Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this time that we've had to uh, read your word together. Together, maybe not in this room together, but uh, together in uh, spirit as we uh, try to continue to, to do things as we normally would. Dear God, we pray that this would, uh, that this would reach the hearts of many people to God, that it would be um, utilized, dear God, that it would be... Um, well received, dear God, and that you would use the words uh, that I've said and the words that I've read from, from your word, dear God, to, uh, to impact people, dear God, to convict people of sin, uh, to cause us to praise you, to honor you, to glorify you for what you've done through Jesus, dear God, and just to uh, ultimately be nearer to you, dear God, to draw close to you. Dear God, we pray that this uh, distance will be temporary, dear God, that it'll be uh, short-lived, that we'll be able to come back together soon. Uh, but until then, dear God, we pray that you would bless the means that we are doing here, dear God, the, the ways that we're trying to, to continue to work, dear God, and pray that you would uh, bless those here and get, dear God. And all these things we pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.